Hey, welcome! Thanks for tuning in! This is There's Something About Artpiece, a podcast where I discuss with experts and industry leaders about the many sides of the artpiece industry. I'm your host, Federico Biancullo. I'm an artpiece artist, founder of The Big Picture, blogger and content creator in the field of architectural representation. I'm on a journey to learn more on all things about artpiece, art direction, business, technology, you name it. And I would like you to be a part of this journey as well. Through these conversations, my hope is to bring light to not so obvious topics connected to our industry and help you grow as a professional, as an artist, and why not, as a human being as well. So please join me. Without further ado, let's jump into this episode of There's Something About Artpiece. Welcome to episode number two of There's Something About Archvis. This episode is about the business side of design, as today's guest will say. And with that, probably you've already guessed who's the guest today. Of course, I'm talking about Fabio Palvelli. And if you've been around in the industry for more than a couple of months, it's highly unlikely that you don't know of him. Fabio is mostly known for being the co-founder of D2 Conferences, which is the largest Archvis event of the planet. However, his main activity relies on consulting for Arcvis companies and freelancers looking for guidance on business-related matters. And last but not least, he's a very active content creator on YouTube as well. At the beginning of our conversation, Fabio makes a really important point, a point that I would like to bring up here in the introduction of this episode and stress out. That is, over-focusing about the business aspects of Arcvis is not really a replacement for poor quality output. Making your best work, it's the entry fee to play the game and be recognized as a legit business. There's no shortcut to that. But going back to the main topic, our conversation of today relied on the issue of differentiating ourselves in a sea of Arcvis companies, which is a topic I'm really interested in too. In an industry where tools are so easily accessible and great images are easier and easier to achieve, what makes us different in the eyes of our client? While we are trying to give an answer to this question, we lend in so many topics like good communication, content creation, and much, much more. So here's my conversation with Fabio Palvelli. Enjoy! People in the field, it's weird, but they don't get the full picture of who you are and what you do. So now you get the chance to introduce yourself to the audience and tell what you do and who you are. And what's your story as well, because Fabio's story is not really out there for people to know. So please go ahead. Tell us your story and tell us what you do. Well, I'm a designer. I was born professionally as a designer. I worked as a designer since more or less 2006 although I've done things also a little bit earlier, but I think they're irrelevant to the conversation of architecture and visualization. My field of expertise has been mainly architecture and then later on architectural visualization. I worked as a visual designer more or less since 2009, so three years after starting architecture. And I've done that as a designer up until mid-2017, more or less. I worked for companies like... Um, there is a company in Vienna that used to own V-Ray for Cinema 4D up until it was bought by Chaos Group. And during that time, I was already making a little bit the shift professionally, not only being a designer anymore, but also taking care of other things like marketing, 
uh, and so on and so forth. I also co-founded the D2 conference, which is the conference for architecture visualization. This is one of the things that I like to say, that it's the biggest conference for architecture visualization on the planet. And in that process, we founded the conference in 2013. Then we went through a restructuring. At the time, the conference wasn't called that way. In 2014, we, we relaunched. And in that process, there was a lot of things that I've learned, which were, in a way, um, related to archivists from the side, right? Not directly. And so that gave me the chance to learn a lot about marketing, about communication, uh, and about business in general. And when I then started to work with uh, that company in Vienna, and I'm always a little bit reticent to say the name because I know that the owner is very peculiar about how the company gets portrayed. And so I worked as a designer. Um, I was there for two years, maybe a little bit longer, I don't remember. Yeah, a little bit longer, I think. It was a joyful ride. I love designing. I love working as a visualizer. But then at a certain point, I started to ask myself questions related to the business side of architectural visualization, mainly because one of the things that I was doing whilst I was working in that company was workshops. And through those workshops, I was meeting a lot of professionals that would come to these workshops with questions that were not directly related to the workflow. At the time, I was working a lot with uh, Cinema for d and V-Ray, and I was teaching that in these workshops. And, and people had questions that were related more to the management side of things. You know, how do you deal with a client? How do you manage changes? How do you do uh, revisions? How do you send a proposal? All that kind of stuff. And so I started to realize very early on that there was nothing related to this side of our business which was available online. There was some stuff done by Jeff Mottel from uh, CG Architect. That was also very valuable stuff for me because it made me understand that there was a need for that kind of knowledge to be elaborated and sold as a product and as a service to other companies. And that's what I did. In 2017, my wife got a job that made us move from Vienna. And so I said, you know what? I'm not going to lose anything. The D2 is already running. That's, you know, it's not big enough for me to survive, but I can figure out other things. Why don't I just put all my focus in this new idea that I had? And I started to do it in 2015, more or less. In 2017, I said, okay, I'm going to go full into this and let's see what happens. And luckily enough, that then turned out into a uh, full functioning business, which I'm still doing nowadays. Somehow the demand for this kind of information is still there. Maybe it's even more than before. Yes, you're right. Um, you know, because of all the crisis and everything, a lot of companies, they found themselves in a position where they did not know in which direction to move. And so a lot of people have reached out to me because they wanted to have a little bit of guidance. And to be honest with you, this crisis is not the first crisis that I went through. There was already a crisis in 2008 that I've experienced uh, directly because there was a recession and a lot of people lost their jobs. 
I didn't, but I was lucky. That was only luck, the reason why I did not lose my job. But this crisis was a little bit of a different crisis. And so I needed myself a little bit of time to really understand what was happening before trying to make any assumption, because eventually that's what I do, right? I take data, I analyze it, and I try to come up with the most possible and plausible explanation and a plan of action that we can decide whether or not to implement with uh, clients that I might have. And during this time, you know, I took a little bit of time off because I was like, you know, people trust me with their money to mm, take the next steps and to decide how to move, how to navigate these waters. And it felt to me like the most important thing for companies to do during this time of crisis, because this was not a recession. This was sort of like a catastrophe, right, happening. And so the type of things that you should do during times like this, first of all, you need to start cutting out all the expenses that you cannot afford to keep in the long term. Really, this is the first thing that a company should do when trying to fight against, you know, crisis like this. The second thing is you need to focus on like sales. You need to maximize and optimize the amount of clients and the um, conversion rate that you might have. And, um, you know, the third one is to take the time to learn new things and see if there is a possibility in the crisis. And sometimes learning new things also goes hand in hand with having to spend more money. So for some people, that was also a little bit of a challenge because it's how do you balance, right? These, we're trying to save money on one side, but also should we take classes? Should we hire a consultant to learn maybe, I don't know, a new tool? a lot of people came to me asking me if it made sense during the recession to learn Unreal Engine. And one of the answers that I always gave to people was like, does it make sense only if there is a chance for you to go to market with whatever it is that you learn? Because otherwise, you know, Unreal Engine, it's just a tool. Um, and so the reason why the, the challenges that we have organized those were me responding to the crisis, thinking of like the community as if it were my company, right? I said, if this was my company, what would I do to sort of like help it out and pick people up and give them a chance to continue developing themselves, give them a chance to feel accomplished, give them a chance to move forward because that's that's how life works in general, right? Right. You move forward and whoever is left behind is left behind. This conversation of today is actually based on something else, something that was based on my feeling even before coronavirus because our industry is a young one. So there's a few things that we have still to learn, even in times of crisis like this one. And there's, of course, time to learn new skills, not just software skills, but also the, the ones that you will call soft skills like marketing, business strategy, sales. And that's that's what I want to ask you actually today, some insight about differentiation. Because companies nowadays, especially the smaller ones, 
probably have a bit of an impasse in trying to make their way on the market and trying to stand out from the competition. So I see a lot of amazing images, even the challenges that you that you started brought up so many talents, so many great images. And it's incredible how many talented artists we have in the in the field. But sometimes I, I wonder, is it enough today to compete and rely just on the artistic quality of an image in this industry? You're asking me a question to which you already know the answer because this is something that we have, you we and have I have discussed. discussed that, of course, yes. <laughs> uh, a lot. The, the, the reality is that it's not worth to simply compete on the quality of the image. What designers need to understand is that being able to create very good images is basically like when you're starting a game of poker, there is a buy-in that you have to pay, right? And you have to put some chips and this is just for you to be able to play. Being able of doing great images, that is the buy-in for you to being able to even consider yourself a professional in this industry. But it doesn't mean that it's the thing that it's going to make you win the job, that it's going to make your client happy. As a matter of fact, I know a lot of people that are very good at doing the images that we see published you know, on forums all the time, personal projects and so on, who have then worked with even clients of mine in the field of archivists who have been extremely disappointing in the way they've handled the project throughout. And that goes to say that, yes, you might be able to create incredibly good images, but then when it comes to actually put yourself in the context of working with a client, you're not able to manage that process good enough to create the images that you usually create on your own. And, you know, I, I get reminded of this every single day, even like when watching YouTube videos, you know, you see videos of like, maybe there is a guy that is very good at dribbling the ball as a basketball player, and then they make him go one-to-one with like some big NBA player, right? And in the YouTube video, that guy burns out the NBA player. You know, he shoots better, it's faster, he does all these tricks, and the NBA player guy goes like, whoa, that's amazing. Why is the that guy not playing in the NBA? Because if you put that person within the context of the NBA, those are little tricks that just work within the context of that video that you see on YouTube, right? They right. don't work in the big league. And so, you know... When people say to me, yeah, how good do my images need to be for my clients to pay me more? I'm like, no, you don't understand. Actually, your images should be the best images that you can make that people can see. And that's the bare minimum thing that you need in order for you to even think of like having a company. But in reality, that doesn't mean that you can start a company or do you can start a business just because you're very good at making images. And this sounds like 
a super counterintuitive thing and people might also hate me for that, but it is the reality. And there's something else that it's coming actually from the other side, the client side, because clients tend to see architectural visualization companies sometimes as commodity providers rather than service providers. That's very true. And sometimes they don't even care that much about image quality, but they care about service, but in terms of commodity. So if I think about the design industry, for example, branding, UX, strategy, logo design, there's a, there's a whole universe of services provided by these companies. And I think we should start to bring this discourse in ArcBiz as well. Try to find a way to differentiate ourselves between each other. But then in order to, in order to stop being commodity providers, what can we do to differentiate ourselves from the rest? So you're very right in what you said. And the problem is that when the, those who are able to provide good images decide to get into the market, they do it without fulfilling some of the checkboxes that are needed in order to start uh, a successful business. And so what they do is that they come automatically at the bottom of the food chain of the industry. One of the things that it's very important that you should do before starting a business is to make sure that you have any sort of good relationship with a potential client. In theory, you don't want to start a business without having actual experience. You want to start a business whilst you spend time working for somebody, learning the job from somebody, and at the same time, building a relationship with a potential client that would be able to give you good work, because that's that's also another thing, right? This is kind of the basis to start. But then once you're established and you have a client base, you have your own work, then you your job, your task as an artist and as a business, I will say now, is to try to differentiate yourself on the competition. Yes. And that's the difficult thing in an industry that is dominated by commodities, I think. We can observe the same thing that it's happening to the architectural visualization industry, to virtually every market that we know of from the 70s, right? Why the 70s? Because the 70s, after the uh, Vietnam War, we saw a little bit of a, an economic growth, a lot of the stuff started to be exported from Asia to America. And that was in, um, I think, because, you know, America was trying to repair a little bit the political relationships with the uh, Far East. Um, and so, you know, companies like Honda, Suzuki, Kawasaki, they started to import or to export, sorry, to America um, very cheap machinery, like motorbikes, cars, and th those uh, new machines, those new motorbikes, those new cars, they were meant to compete with the American market. Now, the American market, the cars, they were very big in, with engine, the engines were very big in displacement. They were very noisy. They were very heavy, very hard to handle. These Japanese cars were very cheap. They didn't use a lot of fuel. They costed a third of what the American product costed. Um, this kind of differentiation competition that we see in the market of companies coming with a lower price and then dominating the market, it's something that we see over and over. You just pick an industry and you'll see that at a certain time, in uh, a certain point in time, 
that industry was disrupted by somebody that came in with a cheaper product, easier product. Then what we see is that over time, for that company to continue the production, they had to do what? Raising their prices, right? Because in order for them to compete with better products, they needed to have more funds to improve themselves. You know, a lot of people don't remember that, but Japanese electronics, which are now the absolute standard in quality and in, uh, you know, reliability, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, Japan used to be seen as China is seen today. That, you know, if you buy something Chinese, it's not very high in quality. It's uh, it's just low in price and it's cheap and it's something that you'll throw away after a little bit of time. Yeah. And actually, Chinese electronics follow the same process as Japanese electronics. I mean, I'm thinking about the smartphone market, but there's for sure many more market in which Chinese products are getting a lot of attention. But I mean... You can expect to get really great Chinese smartphone at premium price, which also have great touch specs. Now they are. They're changing, right? And so we're seeing, like, I use a Xiaomi phone. I'm very proud of it. I keep telling that to everybody. You could buy a phone like this for 90 bucks three, four years ago. Now the prices are getting premium. You know, they're, they're not costing as little as they used to. In Archivist, we're seeing the same thing happening. There are companies coming in from India, from uh, uh, from China, from um, um, Thailand, from Vietnam, which are capable to compete with a much lower price point with what the offer is in Europe or in America, in Canada. The only thing that those guys cannot offer is the communication, is the interaction with their clients. And this is something that I always press my clients to do. Try to figure out a way to be better for your client as a person in real life. That's why I was telling you this is a little bit of a problem now with Corona because Corona doesn't allow you to go and be present for your clients. And so Corona has shown us a side of our business that probably nobody has ever imagined. And so these are now the biggest challenges that we're dealing with. Um, There are some things that we're doing to work a little bit around some of the issues that we have recently discovered, but I think it's all still a little bit too early to come up with some hard conclusions. And I also can imagine that processes like this take a long time to be interiorized by the industry. Yeah, and it it takes also a little bit of time for humans to get used to it, you know? Like, um, five months ago, I wouldn't have dreamed of doing a consultation online. Now people are asking for it, and I've done a couple. I've been in front of a computer six, seven hours, which I thought it was going to kill me. It went actually really good because there was that human need behind that made it worth for both of us to, for you know, for us to put ourselves in front of the cameras and do what we had to do. So communication could be the basis of a differentiation for companies to not compete solely on price. But something else that I discussed that in previous episodes of the podcast about cliches in trying to deliver a proposal to a client, we were mentioning with Paolo Zambrini something about storytelling, the fact that many companies 
jumped on the fashion of defining themselves as storytellers and they trying to sell themselves as visual storytellers, as storytellers. But I wonder, is this maybe a fashion? Is this a cliche or is this something that actually clients are really looking for? It's really hard to say because, you know, like we never have to forget about the power of transaction. When you're dealing with a client, there is something that is happening in that moment of dealing with the client, which is happening on a biological level, right? Where you're having an interaction, you're talking, you're clicking. If the client loves to hear storytelling, naturally, you're going to be more prone later on to say, you know, I sold the project because the client wanted to hear storytelling. This is maybe something that clients want. I don't think of it necessarily as a cliche or a fashion. I think that the problem is that a lot of people that try to get into the business, they look at what other artists and successful companies do, and they use the same language without really understanding what storytelling or what emotional images are, right? It's like emotional images means... Yes, I'm not giving you only a 3D file, I do the post-production in Photoshop. <laughs> that's, that's basically what it means. Okay, uh, hold on a minute on that, because this fashion of defining ourselves as visual storytellers is probably something that has to do more with smaller firms. And I believe that usually larger firms have more opportunities and chances to diversify their proposition and thinking that our industry is more or less 80% smaller companies... Yeah, a little bit more. A little bit more. A little bit more. All right. I would say from 10 upward, it's already a big company. Mm, all right. So how do how can smaller companies, even freelancers, how can they try to show their value and define you know, their unique selling proposition to a client? Again, I really believe in the power of relationships. It's a little bit difficult to explain because, I don't know, you know, the jobs that I got in my life that paid me the most were jobs where people trusted me, where people knew me and where people liked me. And these are three important things that you need to make sure that are there in order for your client to want to have a conversation with you, right? Because if they don't trust you, they don't trust you. They just want to know a price and they don't care. If they don't like you, they're not going to give you the job because unless they're with their shoulders against the wall. If they don't know you, all the other things, they cannot exist because they simply don't know you. And so you need to do a lot of work in order to create an image of yourself that can then facilitate that process for your clients. You know, I don't want to point out which kind of uh, artist did that, but there are some companies, if you think about it, in the early years after the recession in 2010, 11, that started to do a lot of um, work on social media, posting not only tutorials, but also like talking about their projects extensively. What are the things that they do? What are the things that they consider when they think of visuals? they would create images to try and explain the process. What is that goes behind the thinking of creating that image? And we don't see a lot of artists doing that nowadays. You go now to any group on Facebook, you'll see a beautiful image, and the description of that image will say, 3ds Max F-Store, 
So you're trying to make people understand that 3ds Max and FStorm did the image? Explain it to me. Now, now, you know, there was somebody that a few months ago made a comment saying, yeah, if you put a nice description under a crappy image, it doesn't make it better. Of course, I'm not saying that that's what people should be doing, but if there was some thinking, right, going behind the process of making something, then you should be able to say that. You're providing a service, right? I wish for people that they were able to provide the design because this is something that I see a lot of people failing at, but you're providing a service. So if you're providing a service, then you should be able to tell me what it is that you did as a service. And that's another big topic, which is the transition from being solely an artist to a communicator, to a content creator to a certain extent, because what you're talking about is that we should try to outline our process and we should try to communicate this process to the outside world, to our potential clients, to other artists. And that's content creation, which is something that in our industry, um, not many people do yet. Yes, you're right. There's a few people that do content, they do it quite well, but not many people do it the proper way, like in other industries, for example. Do you think that content creation will be a good platform to start for a freelance or for a smaller company to start differentiating? Nowadays, any successful company, any successful company, just think of any brand, they are first a social media company. And probably social media, it's, it's the wrong way to put it because this is not social media anymore. This is more like they're a media company. They're a company that is pr producing the same material that a marketing agency would produce. Think of any company and let's break down how these companies, they portray themselves to the public. I'll just, I'll say a name, you know, random because I have my shoes over there. Nike, right? Nike, they don't only exist in terms of like, it's a shop, right? It's a, it's a company that makes shoes, that makes clothes. We don't think of Nike that way anymore. We think of Nike as the app that you can go and run, the app where you can download the workouts. Uh, we think of it as the company that creates the content that we watch on YouTube. We think of it as Michael Jordan. We think of it as Federer. We don't think of the product anymore. We think of an idea. Apple, same thing. Amazon, same thing. Just any name that you're going to, a successful brand that you're going to think of, it's first a media company. I know a lot of people in the field of archivists which have been able to create a business and really communicate a lot more than just the business side of things through the work that they've done in social media. I can give you the name of uh, Ander Alencar, you know, the yes, Brazilian yes. guy. That guy has such a huge following and he makes content only in Portuguese. It's genius. He's so good at what he does. And guess what happened when a client goes there and sees, okay, this guy has 100,000 plus followers. All of a sudden, I'm not only getting a visualization service, I'm also getting somebody that is able to take my work and put it in front of 100,000 people. So there is a lot added value to what he does. Now, I don't know how he manages his business, but from what I've seen and the stuff that he's been able to, to do, 
I know that he's not doing bad and I'm very happy for him because he deserves it because I'm a content creator and I know how long it takes to make a piece of content. The ability that he has to make all of that content just blows my mind. And people ask me that question all the time. How can I do that without having to make content? To me, it's more of a question of like, what are you going to do without the content? Like, what is your idea? How do you envision the future of any industry? Uh, You know, because as of now, the only clues that are given to us is that content creation is going to stay around for a little while in one form or another. Maybe the distribution will change. You know, people might stop using Facebook. They might stop using, I don't know, Instagram. They might get on TikTok. They might get on um, some other platform that is going to come out. That's, of course, a plausible uh, thing. But the content itself, it's always going to be there for people to, to watch. Archivist artists, but not only archivist artists, designers and artists in general even if very small, they should start thinking of their strategy already now, how to put themselves on social media. Because if you can belong to the rabbit hole of designers, the day that you're going to get very good and you're going to grow professionally, you're going to be in that infrastructure for clients to come and reach you. But there's two key elements here about the whole content creation thing. One, the size of your company. If you're a solo or if you're two people, that's going to be very difficult to manage production and content creation at the same time. And then something that I'm experiencing as well, in order to do content creation, I'm putting aside work, I'm putting aside production. So you have to balance your time. Second important point is how do you create content that is tailored for your clients instead of other artists? Of course, tutorials for artists, it's important. It will stay important to get a name in the industry, get a foot in the industry and be recognized by your peers. But what it counts, in my personal opinion, is going to be the content that you put out for your clients. So how do you come to a point that you create content for your clients instead of content for the industry? Okay, these are two very good questions. The first one is how do you do it if you're on your own? And the shortest answer possible is it doesn't matter which excuse you might have, that needs to be done. It's not a case that not everybody can do it. So you need to figure out a way to be productive and to be able to do it without wasting too much time. In my case, I can tell you, my experience preparation is the key. When I make a video, I never freestyle. There is always a script and I keep track of what I'm saying because I know that it's going to make my reciting in front of the camera 10 hours longer. And I have done videos that sometimes the concept was very small, but it took me two or three days to do them. Why? Because I did not spend time preparing. So scheduling and doing all that preparation, you can do it in the morning whilst having your cup of coffee. I have Evernote on my phone. So even when I'm watching TV in the night, sometimes I take notes. I'm watching a movie or a TV series. Um... The other day we were watching Suburra with my wife and she was like, why you're always on your phone? I was like, that woman said something that it's very important and that it's worth resharing because I think that designers can learn something. And so I make little notes all the time. That is preparation. The second uh, question, which is how do you make content for your clients? I think you should not make the mistake 
of looking at the mountain in its entirety, right? Because that will never make you climb it. You need to look at this whole social media thing step by step. You start doing something and over time, you will eventually find your voice and find your way of doing whatever it is that you have to do. This is also a question that I get very often. It's like, what do I need to tell my clients? And I'm like, you don't need to worry about what to tell them. You have to worry about talking. Because when you talk, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to bite your tongue because you made those mistakes. You're going to go back and you're going to think about it. And the next time, conversation will be better. You know, if I'm dealing with a client, I don't like to send emails. I call them. Because if I can call them and talk to them, I know whether or not I'm going to say something wrong. If, uh, if I do say something wrong, I try to correct it so that I get better at the way I speak. English, it's not my first language. Speaking, it's a very important skill. I don't know why people call it a soft skill. I would say this is probably the hardest <laughs> of the skills. You know, we live in a world that it's made of code. Everywhere you look, you know, you have to call somebody. There is a, a code that you have to put in in order for you to call somebody. If you have to go somewhere, you have to look at the signs that tell you where to go. You know, um, knowing how to manage and how to um, master language is an incredibly important skill. I would argue it's probably the most important one. And I say that because I remember a few years ago, I had a manager that did not understand anything about design, but it didn't matter because as long as he could sell the project, all the nuances and things that we did not know, we could figure them out. The most important thing was for us to get the project. And this is another thing that I often like fight with um, when talking to designers, because designers, they put a lot of uh, emphasis on the design, which is understandable. But you cannot forget that you need to have the economical circumstances in order for that design to exist. And so selling a project is a lot more important than the project itself. Because if you don't sell the project, then the project cannot exist. Obviously, I'm not, selling, I'm not telling you to sell the project and then don't deliver quality. That would be a mistake. And I, it's annoying that I have to make that specification because I know that there are people out there that are going to try and use what I say out of context just to justify their own wrong narrative. Well, but you said it at the beginning, having a good product behind the sales process is like the foundation of everything. Yes, it's your, it's your chip that allows you to play the, the poker game. Yeah, indeed, that's the point. That's the point probably somebody could be missing when talking about the whole thing about business of design. Because design has to be always great design. Needs to be the best that you can do. I would just like to ask you about content creation especially. Do you have any reference, any, you know, reading or books that could be helpful to the audience to start navigating this topic? Or even about, you know, differentiate yourself and personal branding as well? Yes. I would say two books that probably you really need to buy right now. One is This is Marketing from Seth Godin. And the other one is Start with Why from Simon Sinek. 
Actually, there is also another book that I need to recommend, and I'm sorry if we start talking about books, there is just so much. Um, there is another one which is called, uh, the book It's called Zero to One. So Peter Thiel teaches also at the university, and he talks a lot about differentiation. And he is a, an investor um, in uh, Silicon Valley, and he talks about the fact that if you think about it, there are very few companies that do the same thing over on the internet, right? Um, I can give you an example, Skype, Zoom, um, and um, GoToMeeting, right? There are three companies that sort of do the same thing, but they're not the same product and they're differentiated and the clients know exactly why they're getting that and not the other. And Peter Thiel basically has written a book that talks mainly about this. We are brought up as entrepreneurs with the idea that competition is good, but we took it a little bit too far thinking that, you know, any competition is good, which is wrong because too much competition doesn't allow us to do preservation. And sometimes you also need preservation. This is an idea that might go against, you know, the main train of thought at, the, at, the, at this time, because you hear a lot of people talking about disruption. But the reality is that as humans, we are still bound to the availability of certain things. And in the case of archivists, but just even design, we are limited in the terms of um, disruption of the industry to the amount of people that we have on this planet. And if we disrupt an industry where then people uh, lose jobs, um, not because there is a technology that allows them to lose jobs, simply because we have people that exploit the industry. You know, think of like, companies in India that pay very little their employees. Uh, now I heard that Africa is another big one where visualization companies are starting out and people are paid nothing. You're going to exhaust those resources for what? For virtually zero gain. Because, you know, you can simply put the numbers on an Excel sheet to see that at the end of a month, even if you're making a hundred images a month for a hundred dollars and you have to pay a bunch of people for making those images, you're left with very little money. The point that I'm trying to make is that we need to act consciously because if we do this race to the bottom, then we're not doing it for a good cause, we're doing it simply to try and implode as an industry, which is so stupid in my own opinion. We need to be a lot more careful. What I think is also that our industry is relatively young, so there's not that much literacy about the themes of business. You're right in a way to say that it's young, but it's, it's a half-truth because there has been people that have created images for architecture for a very long time. And actually, I still remember with my first job in architecture, somebody that was doing watercolors for our projects because the images back then were still, you know, if you were making a building in the countryside of England, you did not want to have generated, computer-generated images because they were dry. A watercolor was a lot better. And I remember, I might say something stupid to you, but four images 
for watercolors, um, maybe a meter by a meter, back then was 20, 25,000 pounds. You know, there, there used to be an industry that then has been disrupted by doing things with the computer and that's fine, you know, we get technology. Um, people decided to go in that direction. There are some people that still do watercolors. Um, how low can we go next? Because I know people that have told me um, that in the very beginning when the super realistic images started to come out, clients will pay 10 grand for an image which was normal commercial image and they did not have a problem for that. It's the accessibility to the tools. Absolutely. The main takeaway from this is that our next step is to move away from this super availability of the tools and try indeed to do something something unique, something that only us can provide to our clients. And I think that's going to be a long process as well. You know, Federico, I don't look at this anymore with the eyes of what should be done and what should not be done. I look at this as a, look, this is my take on this. You might want to use it as an element of discussion for whatever it is your ambition that you're trying to do. You might disagree with me. You might say, you know what? The future of this is optimization. Images need to cost 20 bucks per image and we need to make 2000 images per project. We don't care. We want to have everything automized. Okay, that's that's whatever it is that you're trying to do. Um, my take is that if you want to work in the highest of the realm of architectural visualization, you have to go beyond and you have to start thinking about what you do in terms of business. You have to think about diversification. You have to think about future vision. You have to think about which kind of relationship do you have with the people that work with you, you know? Why should people that are working with you stay with you? This is also another big question, you know? Like, how can you build a company if people want to get get out of your company? You know, and I'm not saying that there is an answer. It's just that if you don't ask yourself those questions, you might never be able to give them an answer. There's a lot of questions to be asked nowadays, not just because we are in a time of crisis, but even before that time, even before coronavirus times, there, there would have been a lot of questions to be asked from our industry. One thing is this easy access to our tools. The other one is the number of people that want to access to these tools. But that's a story for another time, I guess. There is just one more thing that I want to say before I forget, because, you know, I realized that I talk for a very small audience and people might misunderstand what I say. Again, the items of discussion that I give out, even on my YouTube channel, those are items that people should be able to either decide that they work for them or not. I'm not saying that I'm talking the truth. I'm not saying that I am the best at what I do. I'm not saying that my way is the only way. But the even more important thing is if somebody doesn't do something because of something that I said, this is not what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to give to people is the tools to make better decisions. Now, what I say, it doesn't matter. If you want to do something and it's important to you, you'll do it no matter what. And this goes with everything in life. Now, do you have to do that thing that you really want to do in a stupid way? No? Then let's talk about it. That's 
that's what I do. As also you said, there's no easy answers and people need to think with their own heads at a certain point. They have to develop their own ideas. They have to come up with what works for them and what doesn't. They cannot find all the answers in a YouTube video. That's the thing, you know, the problem is that we are basically the tutorial generation, right? <laughs> yeah, we expect to find all the answers ready and cooked to be used from, from tutorials, Udemy, YouTube or whatever. But anyway, Fabio, I'm sure that we could discuss this for two more hours, but unfortunately we have to stop, I guess. So again, Fabio, thanks for your time. I sincerely hope to have you again here because we have a lot of things to talk about. Federico, thanks a lot again for the invitation. Again, it's weird for me to be invited to things like this, but then again, I get enormous pleasure to have conversations about this stuff, especially um, with people like you. And so again, thanks a lot. I'm honored to be here and I hope that your listeners can get any value. Pleasure was all mine, Fabio. See you next time. Thank you again. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new episode every second week. If you like this episode, help us growing and improving the show by rating and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Got a question or is there something you would like me to cover in a future episode? Write me an email at podcast at bigpicturevisual.com. Thank you again for listening and see you next time.